For the last time, welcome back About South listeners. This is our final episode of the final season, and today we're taking it back to where it all began with the crayfish. You know, I learned this week that it's quite hard to know just how long a crayfish can live, and maybe podcasts are similar. We've been with you through four years, and I don't know if you've noticed, they've been a pretty intense four years. We hope that we've brought you just a bit of joy and knowledge and reflection over that time, and that we've made your weeks just a bit better from July to November. Though we are sad to say goodbye to all of you, we do have some exciting things on the horizon, so stay tuned for those. And if you're just joining us for this episode, then welcome. All of our episodes will stay archived on our feed, so it's never too late to join the About South Club. Today, we're in none other than Auburn, Alabama. Of course we are talking to Jim Steckel and Brian Helms about crayfish and aquatic biodiversity in the Southeast. Jim is an associate professor at Auburn and Brian is an assistant professor at Troy University. Together, they indulge all of my crayfish questions and Jim even took me out in the field to meet the incredibly charismatic species, the jeweled mud bug. I mean, doesn't its name just sound amazing? a jeweled mud bug. We should all be so lucky. This is an episode I've always wanted to make, and it's one that I'm thrilled we're ending the show with. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. So we are here for the final episode ever of About South, four years later, (laughs) back where it all began, the two gentlemen that I emailed in search of the truth of the blue crayfish. (laughs) Elusive blue crayfish. Yes. (laughs) Jim Stuckle and Brian Helms, who were the two people who actually helped me get my head around what a blue crayfish was so many years ago it has led to so many crayfish (laughs) conversations and now we are at the ew shell fishery center at auburn with jim and brian to talk to them about crayfish biodiversity freshwater ecosystems in the southeast and this is absolutely the perfect way to end this podcast so thank you to both of you for having me Absolutely. No, you're welcome. Absolutely. You have no idea how excited I am <laughs> to be here. And uh, this morning, Jim took me out uh, in the field, and we dug yep. up burrowers, and I'm covered in mud. And in fact, when we went to Wendy's, we, we were commented on how muddy we were. Right? We weren't even in the restaurant, and the lady through the drive-thru said, y'all got some mud. <laughs> So it's already been quite a day. I've awesome. been pinched by multiple crayfish, and it was amazing. That's cool. It was Very so cool. cool. Brian, we're sorry you missed it. I, I'm sorry I missed it, too. <laughs> Brian's, Brian's dug plenty doing, of crayfish. I, I know. I've done, dug plenty, and I was being grown up today. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's okay. <laughs> to begin, 
I want to talk to you guys about something that over the course of doing this podcast, we've thought a lot about what makes the South special or not that special after all, this sort of myth of Southern exceptionalism. But the one thing that we've come back to that is quite real about the region, and not because we call it the South, but is the incredible biodiversity of freshwater fishes and animals in this area. So just to get us started, this is for both or either of you, how would you describe the biodiversity of this region that we call the South? Incredible. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's un- kind of unprecedented, I think, um, for this part of the world, largely as a, a, a result of you know, we're kind of in a, a crossroads of lots of great conditions for biodiversity, right? So you, we have uh, lots of water. We're at this crossroads of geology. Um, and those two things lead to a lot of aquatic habitats. And then coupled on top of that, um, we were free of glaciers, right? So there's a glacial retreat and, and I mean, glacial refuge. And so, as a result, we have high levels of biodiversity, high levels of endemism, so things that aren't found anywhere else in the world. Um, and so it's, yeah, truly, it's a playground for, you know, for aquatic biologists, mm-hmm. but e- even other things. I mean, even uh, uh, plant diversity um, and, and insect diversity, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, so we have the, the highest diversity of uh, freshwater mussels in the world here mm-hmm. so north america has almost 300 species of mussel and alabama alone has about 180 mm-hmm. at last count so we have the highest in the south alabama has the highest diversity of any southern state i think we were talking earlier about taxonomy and so that the numbers are in flux right now both for mussels and for crayfish and other things and, and the same thing holds true for crayfish there are about 400 species uh, in North America, and Alabama alone has 80 to 90 species mm-hmm. at last count. So so very diverse. So we are in the South, we're at the epicenter of freshwater mussel diversity, crayfish diversity, um, snail freshwater diversity, snail, freshwater snails, turtle. and even our, our fish diversity is, is not the highest in the world, but it ranks amongst the highest of any region in the world. And how do invertebrates in particular play a role in maintaining this diversity or challenging how, like endemic species? What's the status or role of invertebrates like crayfish mm-hmm. in these habitats? So we're talking about crayfish. Like crayfish, they are pretty pivotal in uh, many uh, ecosystems, freshwater ecosystems. They can dominate the, the biomass. They can be the most uh, have the highest biomass of any organism in some systems. They pretty much eat everything. Uh, they are omnivores uh, with the capital O. They will eat each other. They will eat. Uh, they can be predators. They will eat dead leaves. They'll eat sand. Also, pretty much everything likes to eat them. As as a result, they're sort of highly linked in in aquatic food webs. Okay, so. Um, in many cases, you know, some might call them keystone species in some systems. You know, whether we go that route or not, certainly they are highly linked, right? And so that, that makes them an important group of organisms uh, in, in aquatic systems. Uh, invertebrates in general, 
you know, I mean, they're the most, I mean, if we go to invertebrates, 99% of life, 99% of animals are invertebrate, right? So, and so we can say that, yes, they're <laughs> the other 99% is pretty important. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I'll let Jim, you, know, you can maybe talk about some, some other invertebrates. Freshwater mussels, for example, are, are really diverse and they can dominate the biomass as well. And so where, where crayfish, like Brian said, are omnivores, so they're kind of like the vacuum cleaners almost of the stream, eating up a lot of the detritus. Um, mussels are filter feeders, so they actually help to, to clear particles out of the water column. So, so they've been called kind of a natural filtration mm -hmm. system as well. And then that's, that's really important both for pulling particles out of the water, but then also for kind of slowly storing and then slowly releasing nutrients back into the water rather than having these big pulses of nutrients come down at one time and then, then nothing and then another big pulse. They, if there are enough mussels in an area that are left, then they can have a pretty big impact on nutrient cycling in the streams as well. Probably not as important of a food item as crayfish, for example. Mm -hmm. Crayfish are kind of like the, the chicken of the stream because right. everything right. likes to eat them. Uh, but mussels are preyed upon. There's uh, muskrats will eat them. A lot of terrestrial animals, a lot of fish species uh, will eat mussels as well. And there's also uh, some indication that they help um, stabilize stream beds as well. So if you have a pretty dense aggregation of mussels, they can really help with that stream bed stability, uh, which is a huge problem in, in a lot of our streams. So they perform a pretty pretty important function that way. Um, and there's, there's some evidence that suggests that more diverse assemblages may have a stronger effect on those things than just one species alone. Kind of neat too about, you know, we're talking about mussels or crayfish and, and rolls. You know, um, we can talk about them as like, what's the role of the mussel or what's the role of the crayfish? But they actually, if you start looking close, like from a finer scale, there's species specific differences. And so the role of a crayfish or the role of a mussel might not be sort of a, a mussel is not a mussel or a crayfish yeah. is not a crayfish. Right? There, there's species specific differences in these things. Um, and they eat different things. Uh, mussels filter in different ways. They have different life histories. And so, um, you know, we can kind of, paint in broad terms, but get down to it, they actually, individual species have different roles. Um, and so, so like, for instance, some crayfish are more aggressive, some are more predacious, some are- <laughs> We saw yeah, aggressive yeah, examples. Yeah, today, yeah, there was some aggression today, yeah. 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 Some anger management that's might right, be right. called for. Yeah, yeah, so, so higher levels of like herbivory or what, what not, you know, so they, they do play different roles depending on the species to some degree. Yeah. You want to pull oh. one out? Yeah. Okay, it's going to pinch you. Oh, it's, I mean, how bad is it going to hurt? Not that bad. <laughs> it'll All be right, worth so, it. So it's down in the mud, and it's on this, this side, and you'll feel, it'll kind of feel a little bit like a rock, but you'll feel it move a little okay. bit. Can you feel it? Yeah. Oh. Ow! Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> he got Jimmy on you. me. Oh. Yeah, he'll let go in a minute. Slid you're really good. Man! Nice Woo! work! Gina, you're a veteran. You pulled him out by the claw. All that right. was impressive. When it came to watch, I'm pretty sure I'm bleeding. Good job. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you are too. Yeah. You did it the good. hard way.
comes to biodiversity, are there problems in the Southeast with places losing biodiversity oh, yeah. because of mm -hmm. pollutant or mm -hmm. yeah. invasive yeah. species? How do y'all yeah. think about that as um, so, so people who work in this field? Yeah, it's a huge problem. A huge and, problem. and I think um, one of the biggest problems is loss of connectivity mm -hmm. and then loss of habitat. So mm -hmm. the, the loss of connectivity in streams can be longitudinal. So when you have dams in the stream, it can block fish from moving from one area of a stream up to another. And when you have something like a, the mussels that depend on those fish as hosts for their young, for the parasitic young, that can have a major impact on mussel diversity and mussel populations as well. Um, on the other hand, you have lateral connectivity. So the streams, a lot of people think of flooding as being kind of a, uh, something wrong, you know, like you shouldn't have floods and that that's not a natural thing, but it is very natural and the, and the aquatic community depends on periodic flooding. And so that connection of a stream to its floodplain is very important. And so now, um, I don't think, we didn't have a chance to take you to a lot of streams around here, but a lot of streams here in Alabama and I'm sure in Georgia as well, when you, you go out and walk these streams, the banks are six to eight, you know, to 10 feet high, even in these smaller streams, because they're getting more and more in size, then that kind of feeds back on itself. So the, the deeper that stream bed is, the harder it is for that water to get out into the floodplain. So it flows faster within that stream bed, scours the stream more, makes it even deeper, and exacer exacerbates that problem. So these, these streams are now just getting deeper and getting more and more cut off from their floodplains, and that's a big problem, um, both for things like fish that need to go into that floodplain to forage, but then also for uh, crayfish species, like we saw today, especially the burrowers that spend part of their life uh, cycle in the stream, but then another part of their life cycle, they need to get up into the floodplain and burrow down into the soil and, you know, and, and actually live out of the, the water. So, so both types of connectivity, connectivity are pretty important. And then we have the, the sand wedges yeah, that you've seen yeah, <laughs> move right, right. down to. So in a lot of our streams, you'll see this. It's pretty spectacular when you see it. You'll just see this big wall of sand. And it's just moving downstream and just smothering everything in its path. And it'll uh, fill in all the interstitial spaces between the rocks. So things like crayfish that depend on those refuge areas get pushed out. Uh, mussels will get smothered. Snails will get smothered. And those wedges are just constantly moving down the streams now. So things like um, uh, management of the landscape around streams are really important. So when a lot of people think of a river or a stream, they think of it as an independent unit. But it's actually very interconnected with its surrounding floodplain and the riparian zone and, and its drainage area. Um, so things like managing construction sites, dirt roads, that type of thing are very important for controlling erosion, habitat stability, sand wedges, and then incisement of, of streams. So I guess, yeah, development, bad agricultural practices yeah. sends the sediment into the streams, mm -hmm. and then we see that just this domino effect. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, because right. once it's in that stream, it, it, it's in there, and all it can do is move downstream. And, and yeah. we see that as you yeah. know, one of the major threats. In the, not just in the southeast, but it, but definitely in the southeast as well as other parts of the country. Yeah, I mean, even uh, just kind of the going touching off on the connection part that Jim's referring to. I mean, the, these in-stream channels are disconnected from their floodplain along the, the path of the flow. But you know, also what there, there's a problem of being too connected to the watersheds as well 
because what happens is they, you know, particularly in more urbanized or suburban areas, we have direct inputs from large parts of the watershed through storm sewers, right? And so you get these, these strong pulses of water that would normally infiltrate to the ground that basically is efficiently pumped to the, the stream channel by design, right? It's efficiently you know, uh, uh, routed there, and so it, it yeah, exacerbates this, this problem. Um, yeah, because you've got more and more water rushing through that narrow yeah. channel, and it, it, that scouring is, is a huge problem. And then, you know, in the southeast, when we have high degree of endemism. If, yeah, I mean, that, that, that is kind of the big issue, right? Because you have you know, the urbanization and, and land use issues aren't unique to the southeast, but what is unique is this is endemism, right? So these endemic organisms or organisms are only found in one particular place and nowhere, nowhere else in the world. And so when you have this degradation of habitat and, you know, the species that would blink out because of you know, habitat or, or whatever environmental degradation, well, there's not another population, there's not another population around, right? This is the only place they're found in the world. And so that, that's the really, the, the, the big issue, I guess, here yeah. is that, that hollow endemism sets up a high probability of extinction. Oh, right. So suburban sprawl is the same everywhere. Mm -hmm. yeah. But if this crayfish only lives yeah, here, that's right. this that's right. suburb yeah. that's generic and, and USA. crayfish in particular have very, yeah. they tend to have more narrow yeah. ranges and a higher degree of endemism than a lot of other aquatic yeah. animals. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. Fish, and cray, fish, crayfish, and snails are, are you know, pretty susceptible to these things. When, you, when you're talking about conservation, two of the main things you need to know is how rare a species is or what's its distribution. Right. But in order to look at that, you have to know what, what a species at. is, yeah. right? Because that's the main conservation unit. And so if, like the devil crayfish, for example, that's getting split up into multiple species. So when yeah. you split a taxa into multiple species, then by definition, the range gets smaller and smaller. So if it's a, so the devil crayfish is already very common and widespread. So there probably won't be an issue there, but for other species that are already rare, yeah. if you split, split them up even further. You come to find out you may only have a very small number of one. Thing. Yeah, that's, that's wow. right. So they may go from being, you know, merely threatened or of concern to, um, you know, to a higher ranking, maybe, you know, endangered or right. even critically endangered. too depressed about this. <laughs> yeah, so um, let's, <laughs> let's move into um, what are some species of crayfish uh, that y'all find especially compelling and maybe that we should be worried about? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, now it's becoming a very yeah, depressing yeah. conversation, yeah, but let's yeah. talk about the happy <laughs> things about crayfish. Things. But then, yeah. like, this is why they might be in a bit yeah, of peril, yeah, and yeah. this is why we need to do this work. One that I think is really, really cool, um, the burrow and bog crayfish. There's two, a burrow and bog crayfish and the lavender burrow and crayfish. No, burrow and bog and lavender bog crayfish. They're down in uh, Mobile and Baldwin counties. Um, they're found largely in pitcher plant bogs. So these pitcher plant bogs are like, they're, they're called perched water tables. So you have this, this 
impervious layer of soil um, so that water, when it rains, it, it creates sort of like, like a bowl of, uh, of water. And then it, so there's a wetland there um, full of pitcher plants and other things. But these crayfish, they uh, live in these, these bogs. They never really venture out ever into uh, open water. They, many of them are as they're they're purple. They're they're beautiful colors. They're purple. Purple or you know, from blue to purple, right? Um, and they're totally adapted to this subterranean life. But they've got reduced antennae. They've got no spines on them. They've got their their claws are are kind of positioned weight right in front of their uh, their their mouth. Their uh, their tails are really reduced. They look like little tadpoles. They build these uh, kind of extensive burrows that are just a, a you know a few uh sometimes a few inches below the surface but they, they they kind of spread out in this sort of dendritic fashion the neat thing about so that, that just that you know they're, they're living in these sort of isolated you know weird little wetland pockets you know um, throughout the the landscape is is weird enough we've done some genetic work with them and you know each one of these individual populations um, seem to they're, they're really genetically they're not diverse at all incredibly low genetic diversity in each one of these populations and we also see like differences like even across a road it's like 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 there's differentiation or, or you know genetic differences from a population on one side of the road to the next there's just uh, not a lot of movement from population to population so the um, and it seems that you know from some of our deductions that you know, these things really disperse really, really rarely. And like most of these populations are found in like one or just a couple females. And so it's just, to me, it's just a fascinating species. We were out in a, a bog um, that looks, you know, just to the eye, it's a, a expansive, you know, wide open pitcher plant bog. Um, and come back and we were taking uh, tissue samples of these things and come back you know, after getting the, the data and see that some a uh, handful of uh, individuals were you know more than like five percent different than another group of individuals and you know at five percent genetic difference is, is that, that's pretty different i mean considering we're what one less than one percent different than chimps. chimpanzees right so, yeah. that's, that's a, to put it in perspective right and this is in a otherwise you know looks to, to me a flat bog get back to the map and realize oh there's a very slight elevational difference a drainage divide in these two little groups, right? I mean, we're talking about, you know, 500 yards from each other, yeah. But there was this, the, the, the water, maybe a, a drop of water flowed different ways. Um, and then they were, you know, drastically genetically different. Yeah, so, so to me, you know, that kind of thing, it's like this, this it's sort of this cryptic diversity with these things. They all kind of look the same, um, but genetically they're so diverse. And so wow. it's, that, to me, yeah. that, that, that's like, I read that question, like, oh my God, this is the coolest, that, that's the coolest thing I, I get excited about. So that one, uh, to, to me, that, that, those, those two species down there are, are, are just really neat. Um, and they're, they're really localized, right? But then there's uh, another species, Cambara striatus. Okay, it is the most common crayfish in Alabama. It's found everywhere, right? But to me, it is the most fascinating animal, right? <laughs> you can find it in water, you can find it in burrows, mm -hmm. you can find it kind of in between. It is the most aggressive, foul-tempered beast you've ever... Oh, yeah, they're worse than what I mean, we dealt with this I've, morning. It's, it's drawn blood yeah. on my finger through a plastic bag before. <laughs> um, 
but it, it, it shows remarkable variation in its morphology. Um, it, it's, it's called the ambiguous crayfish, the, the, the common name, because it, none of its characters are really concrete. So every, whether it's color or, or, or morphology, it's, it's very plastic. Um, and to me, it's just that, like, those are the, the two extremes, right? You have this, this animal that, and these are fairly closely related organisms, right, uh, species that are, you know, one's totally broad range, lives in all these different habitats, super tolerant, you know, all kinds of crazy morphology, and then this, these other species that is, you know, highly specialized into one environment, you know, um, genetically just really, you know, uh, uh, conserved in its diversity, and um, yeah, that, to me that, that's just... Those sort of yeah, because it's the same the, animal, but they're not the, operating by seemingly the same logic yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's just, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're blow my mind every time I think about them. And like every time I think we learn and, and kind of figure them out, it throws the curveball. To be honest, I think just burrowing crayfish in general. You'll notice the theme here. You like <laughs> yeah, the burrowers, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, the burrowers are pretty awesome, and it is, and I, I think it's. Just because number one, they're they're hard to study, so it's a little bit challenging to try to figure out how to do that. But just the fact that that they're really good engineers. You know, they build their own homes, their own habitat underground. Most people, when they think about crayfish, we're used to seeing them in a stream and flipping rocks. You don't realize when you're walking across a field, there could be just hundreds of crayfish mm -hmm. living in these caverns underneath of you that that they've built, right? And then. The other cool thing about them is though those structures actually seem to serve a function. So we've been mm -hmm. doing a lot of work with the chimneys that everybody's familiar with. And um, you know, one idea is that those chimneys are, they're just accidental structures. When the crayfish is excavating its burrow, it's kind of like a dog and it's just you know, throwing that dirt up behind it and it just happens to form a chimney. But when we actually videotape them in the lab, you can see that those chimneys are very deliberate structures. So this crayfish will bring up one pellet of dirt at a time. They'll pat it into place very carefully. And, you know, and then they'll build this very symmetrical chimney sometimes, but then other times of the year, they don't build chimneys at all. Um, and so some of the work that we're, we're doing shows that those chimneys actually do serve as ventilation systems. Like I was telling you earlier, today so they actually when the wind's blowing they'll create a low pressure system so it draws air into the burrow through a non-chimney opening uh, through the burrow and then back up through the chimney again and so they're really engineering that burrow to set up optimal environmental conditions for themselves rather than just relying on ambient conditions um, and then we've also uh, brian and i and other uh, researchers as well have found some evidence that they might serve kind of as signal towers. So when, uh, when the young crayfish are coming out of a stream, they're very attracted to those chimneys. And so they'll, they'll hone in on chimneys that are built by uh, individuals of their own species. So if, if I build a chimney, they don't care. If another species builds a chimney, they might be a little bit attracted to it, but not so much. But if it's one of their own species, those juvenile crayfish will hone in on that and then they'll dig a burrow right next to that, that chimney. So they're, so they're not only controlling their own environment, but they're possibly using that for communication as well, which makes sense because when you have just one crayfish living underground in a chimney, you know, they need to be able to communicate with other crayfish around the signal when they're receptive for mating or 
uh, when they're going through a molt cycle or so on. And so that, that may be a way to do it. So that's, that's to me is, is really fascinating to think that they're actually engineering their own environment and building these structures for a specific function. Yeah, and it's also like this network community yeah. of mm-hmm. here's yeah. how young know where to come and R- right, right, yeah, it's yeah. incredible. Yeah, and for for an animal that simple, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, most people were, were familiar with crayfish either just from catching them or having a crawfish boil. Yeah, and and they don't their brain is pretty dispersed, um, but you know they do have some intelligence and some some pretty intricate behaviors. Yeah, and it is important, you know, the you know from the the eyes of a crayfish, right? Because they see the world very differently than we do, right? Mm-hmm. And and they're and when we if we go out and look for these animals, they're in patches, right? And so if you're thinking about a a, a juvenile animal trying to navigate that world, you know, finding that patch is important. If they if they colonize somewhere else, um, with outside of that patch, right? That that they may not have the right environment for their first for them to tolerate or to live or they might not have a mate later down the road so finding that patch is pretty important yeah um, and so having cues like this you know um, is really imperative for just recruitment into a population it is incredible yeah. I like that when you said like seeing the world through crayfish eyes I was like you have no idea how much time I've spent thinking about <laughs> what is the crayfish's yeah. experience of the world yeah. <laughs> because it I mean it doesn't seem Obviously, you can't anthropomorphize this because it's totally different, mm-hmm. but it's hard not to like have this respect for the intentionality behind the building yeah. and the community structure, yeah. and it's kind of mini land use. Right. Yeah, yeah. As long as you have to like taste the crayfish world, right? That's yeah. probably the better way of saying yeah. it, because they, they really do taste their entire world, their, their whole, you know, Yeah, their antenna. Their antennae and everything. They're, they're, they're tasting their environment more than they probably more see More than, it. yeah. So vision... Looking yeah. through a crayfish eyes yeah. may yeah, not smell. be the right way to say it. Right? <laughs> so, so smelling, very bad. smelling through a crayfish's yeah, antennae, yeah. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Tasting through a crayfish tongue. <laughs> How much time does this species spend in the water proper, or do they spend most of their time? Most of their time underground. Underground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost all of their time and then will they go their food supply they'll maybe go out to hunt or and come back or yeah that's something that we don't have a what's their average day yeah handle on we think that this species is more of an ambush predator okay so a lot of times you'll see them kind of right at the surface of the burrows and in fact if you go out in the evening uh, with a flashlight, uh-huh. you see these their beady little red yeah. eyes, and, uh-huh. and you can you can shine them, and they'll reflect the light at the burrow. So, um, so w- one thought is that they kind of wait by the mouth of the burrow for a, a cricket or a grasshopper oh, or yeah. some insect okay. to come by, and then they grab it, okay. bring it down into the burrow. Now down in the burrows, they probably you know will get occasional earthworms and other things that, that are underground yeah. and, and down in there. Um, and then on, um, you know and the nighttime, especially after a rain, they may come out and do some foraging around oh, okay. the burrow. So there's actually a researcher at um, uh, University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know that that other, that other football place. team. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I've heard of them. It, <laughs> so uh, she actually has cameras set up on burrows, and oh. so she's recording. What when the, they come out, how often, how much time they spend out, and then, you know, when they come back again. Yeah. So 
so that's something a lot of us are really looking forward to to seeing when she completes what that study because that will give us a lot more information on that type of question yeah. in terms of what kind of what, like what you said what's the average <laughs> what's the average, what's the average day? day you know what's their day job yeah wake up dig <laughs> yeah. a little dig a little <laughs> hunt a little <laughs> hope that steckle isn't coming out and digging yeah. us up yeah So what can some of the research you're doing or just the study of crayfish in general, what can it tell us about the world or about some of these eco-diversity problems in the region? Um, a little bit of like, why study them? Mm -hmm. In addition yeah. to the fact they're obviously fascinating, <laughs> yeah. but for maybe people who aren't as completely converted as the three of us. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a tougher question because I, I think a lot of us study them just just because we think they are pretty cool um, but I uh, I think they can be good sentinel species mm -hmm. you know number one for we do a lot of thermal tolerance work in the in the lab so um, they're a good species to study what effects of climate change might be on stream communities because they uh, those changes in temperature are going to affect the crayfish like Brian said, not every crayfish species is the same. So some species may be more or less sensitive than others. And then depending on which species get weeded out or which species are favored and become more abundant because of warming temperatures or cooling temperatures, depending on where you're at, could really have an impact on the ecosystem. And because they are keystone species, they, they really impact their environment. And they also serve as food for a huge range of species and those effects are not only limited just to crayfish, but they trickle through the, the whole ecosystem. Yeah, and if you kind of expand it out to just uh, the invertebrates in general, I mean, the um, you know, invertebrates really do uh, reflect their environment, okay? And so it's, um, we can learn a lot about what's going on in the environment by seeing who's living there, okay? So it's, you know, kind of like, you know, if you throw a party, right, and so you have a you have you have all this this whole realm, all of your acquaintances. You throw a party, you know, a, a certain subset of your acquaintances will come to the party, right? You throw a party of just like serving beer and burritos, another subset will come, right? You serve a you have a party with showing the Georgia Auburn game, another subset will come, right? And so invertebrates are kind of like that, right? So there there's this whole suite of invertebrates and we're kind of trying to figure out what the party the, the the party that's going on is reflected by the bugs that are there right and so um that's really one of the biggest things you know and, and i mean agencies and, and and us and and other folks use that to to really get a handle on what is going on um in in the environment to, if there's a um you know pollution issue, a sediment issue, a temperature issue, whatever, that is reflected in the organisms that are there. And so um, crayfish are, are part of that. Uh, mussels are part of that. Mm -hmm. Insects are part of that. Also, um, crayfish are kind of a poster child for invasive species issues. So we've all heard of invasive species. That's, that's a big problem in the world today. Um, when North American crayfish were introduced over to Europe, they brought a disease called crayfish plague with them and they wiped out almost all of the endemic European crayfish. So most of the European crayfish now are, populations have either gone extinct or they're 
threatened. They're in, in the most common crayfish now tend to be invaders from North America. Here in the United States, we typically don't get a lot of crayfish establishing themselves from other countries, partially probably because of crayfish plague because they can't handle that. But we get a lot of crayfish that move from one part of the United States to another and cause a lot of problems. So red swamp crayfish are an example of that. Um, so they have uh, established populations as far north as Michigan right now. So we're, we're actually studying using crayfish to try to develop control techniques for invasive species. And we're in a really good spot to do that down here because we have natural populations on the station. So we can do a lot of research and evaluate different control techniques. So, so we're hoping that um, not only will we be able to develop control techniques for invasive crayfish, but we'll be able to use a lot of that knowledge to apply to invasive issues for other organisms as well. What do you, each of you hope to see for the future of studies involving crayfish and invertebrates or just the general picture of the ecosystems in this region and these species? I would say a, um, a full appreciation, right? So to once we, me, you, anybody, once we appreciate something, we act to protect it, okay? And, to, but to appreciate it, we have to sort of learn about it and understand it, right? So if, if we can appreciate something, um, I, I think that, you know, appreciate the, the biodiversity we have, appreciate the crayfish that are here, appreciate whatever it might be uh, associated with these, these uh, ecosystems, that will be a, a, a closer step to protection and, and conservation. And I think, to me, that, that's really what I like to see. Um, and that begins with, you know, things like this and, and, and education and, and, you know, getting the word out about how incredibly cool this world is. <laughs> yeah. <right? laughs> um, so, yeah. That, yeah, that, yeah I agree. And I, I think that's why it was, we were both pretty excited to have you come out today, you know, and that you were willing to listen to us blab on and on about crayfish and yeah. how cool they are. And, and, uh, but it really does help to get the word out. I think that's, that's the most important thing is to have people, especially here in the South, gain an appreciation just for the amazing biodiversity that they have that, you know, it's, it's easy to either take it for granted or not to even realize what you have here in, until it's gone. Yeah, and one of the things, you know, it's like, some of the, the bigger bodies of water around here are, uh, for lack of a better term, more obvious. The Cahaba River, for instance. I mean, it, it's, it is an amazing place. It's beautiful, right? And, and it doesn't take a lot of convincing to say, hey, we should preserve this. We should conserve this. But, you know, once you start understanding what goes on, say, in the Cahaba, well, it's, it's not just the Cahaba that we should be concerned about. It's, it's the, this, all the things that go into the Cahaba, mm -hmm. all those smaller streams, all those little tiny creeks and all those little tiny brooks and all those little tiny ditches that are in, in backyards and those, those things that don't flow all year, those are the things that are important, right? Because that feeds in, that directly is, uh, drives what goes on in these bigger, more charismatic places, right? And so that, to me, is you know, that, that full appreciation of, yeah. of, of what you see is not, you know, it, you, you don't see the whole picture just by looking at, at one stretch of river, right? It's everything upstream. 
you know, sometimes it's you have to learn to appreciate what doesn't look so good. So like the Cahaba River looks pretty, everybody can understand that's great. Um, but the take this down to more detail, there's a good example of that with, um, so here on the station, if, we've, if I picked up a, a red swamp crayfish from one of our ponds, I'd pull it out and it might be covered with worms, right? <laughs> and so most people would be like, oh my God, that's, there's something wrong with that crayfish. It's sick. This is disgusting. I would never eat that crayfish. But in fact, that might be the healthiest crayfish you'd ever mm -hmm. see because they, they have an um, association with the ectosymbiotic worm. These worms are called brachiobdelidins, and they're actually cleaner worms. So they kind of form the same function for crayfish that cleaner shrimp do on a reef for fish. And they get on their carapace, and they, they clean off all the fouling organisms, and they help clean their gills. And crayfish will actually grow better, and they'll survive better in fouled environments when they have a healthy complement of worms growing on them. So, so that's always, it's kind of a nice example of just because something doesn't look nice in the natural world doesn't mean that it's not performing a good function and, it's, and it might be very important and it might actually be very beneficial. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you would be highly remiss if we didn't talk about? Um, sound bite things or like yeah. I really came here today and I want to say this uh, you eat crawfish yeah you study crayfish yeah that's right that's, that's <laughs> the difference between crawfish you, and crayfish yeah. you eat crawfish, crawfish are for eating crayfish yeah. are for studying yeah That's our show this week and every week that's it that's our show the whole thing we finished thank you so much to Jim and Brian and Auburn master student Gabby Elliott who was out in the mud digging crayfish with us you can watch a video of Gabby tackling a monster jewel mud bug on our website aboutsouthpodcast.com We'd also like to thank all of the students in Jim Steckel's lab at Auburn. They were incredibly generous with their time and their lab is absolutely, truly picture perfect. About South has been brought to you from Gresham Park, the historic West End, points all over Atlanta and points all over the Southeast and the country. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Kelly Vines has been my fearless co-producer through all these years and this all really started at my kitchen table with Kelly's big brain and her incredible acumen for finding a good story and also, uh, weirdly enough, like several laptops and a hammer. And we have this great picture of the day that it all started. And there were also cupcakes. So that's how this whole thing began. And we think that was a pretty good recipe. Ajoy Danso came on board in our second season and definitely helped us 
like times a thousand with so many wonderful ideas, her golden girls knowledge, and she has just been this amazing force of energy that has kept so many things in line. Lindsay Baker was also a part of our team and she just wrote this most beautiful copy and our website was so well done in so many ways because of her work. And this season, Jessica Parker has brought her enthusiasm and like the funniest text I've ever read and just like her all around generous and good spirit. And together, all of these women have made this podcast with me and we have loved every second of doing it. We'd also like to thank all of our guests over the years. We could not have made this show without you. Like there would not be a show without you. And so we are so thankful for your time. And our friends and families have indulged so much podcast talk and they've given us so many wonderful ideas and opinions about everything that we did. In particular, Lindsay Ecker, William Burhan, Corey Parker, Scott Heath, Shannon Fink, Stephanie Roundtree, and really, honestly, too many people to even name have been completely instrumental in us sustaining our energy and just have been those steadfast supporters that have made all of the difference. And most of all, I want to thank all of you. I don't know who all of you are, but I just adore you. And I am so grateful for your generous ears since 2016. So until we meet again, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. It became this funny metaphor for the okay. show. It was why we started the episode because it's like it's real. I can go get one, right? But it's, it's not, not yeah. actually like a real. Like I'm not yeah. going to wander out into the St. Johns River and pick up a bright blue, right? Crayfish, probably, probably, probably. <laughs> 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 never, never you say never. never. Know. Yeah. 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 See them out there. So that's how it all started. Yeah.